Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. On this show, I have a delightful and entertaining discussion with a martial arts teacher, author and podcaster, Chris Wilder, in Don't Drink With Calvin. Like all the best teachers, Chris Wilder is a person with diverse experience and knowledge. His professional career has included working as State Executive Director on two presidential campaigns. He was employed on the United States Senate staff as a political and public affairs consultant, working with multi-state and national corporations, and was regularly featured on many national channels for his expert commentary. Never content with a single perspective, He travelled the globe in his own spiritual quest, spending years as a Franciscan friar, a year and a half tutelage with a Lakota medicine woman, as well as a period of time with the Shinto group. An avid and true traveller rather than just a tourist, Chris's research into varied cultures continues to this day and he brings comparable compassion to martial arts, which he has trained in since 1977. Chris has authored and co-authored numerous critically acclaimed and several best-selling martial arts books, and hosts the Back Channel and the Martial Arts and Life podcasts. He has Dan Grades in Goju-Ru Karate, Taekwondo, and Kodokan Judo, as well as extensive experience in Western boxing and wrestling. He established his school, the West Seattle Karate Academy, in 1993. With his political and religious backgrounds, you might be forgiven to expect the Chris Wilder martial arts teacher to be a man shrouded in a dense fog of subjective opinion and dogma. A man of high intelligence for sure, an intellectual definitely, but perhaps the type of traditionalist who will be at stark odds with the modernism of self-protection or the post-modernism of combat sports. I say might be forgiven because if you have met and spoken to Chris for even a short amount of time, you will discover a grounded and logical teacher whose passion for teaching is only matched by a worldly sense of humility. When asked about ideas to discuss for this show, he came back with some fascinating and interesting subjects that transparently demonstrated his integrity as a teacher. Chris seeks to make teaching more efficient, to put his students first and to get the best out of people whilst being vigilant of vacuous fads and meaningless buzzwords that continue to plague martial arts teaching. Hello, Chris Wilder. Welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts podcast. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Last time I saw you, you were visiting the UK and took you around our zoo and you experienced some very English fish and chips. We discussed (laughs) so much interesting stuff. You've got some great stories and anecdotes that I am now stealing regularly from my clients, I have to say. That illustrated really good points. You're one of these people that can go for the takeaway of something. This is what I like. And I don't mean that in a fast food setting. We can have a conversation about something and we'll pull upon an anecdote or a parable or a fable or or whatever the incident that it is. And you can get straight to the point of saying, and what do we learn from that? And I absolutely love that in a teacher. So hopefully we'll get some of that into the discussion. But that was my first impressions of you, Chris. Oh, that's that's awfully kind of you. Well, I'm going to have to push the beginning of this interview to my mother so that she can hear <laughs> that. <laughs> so she could hear that. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, very, very, it's very true. It's very true. That's that the impressions that I got. It's been wonderful ever since. So this is an ideas show. That, that, that was always the drive when I did the podcast, Stroke Self-Indulgent. So we can go off for the tracks as much as you like, really, on the subject. We'll bring it somewhere into the line of martial arts, I'm sure. But there's an interesting subject that you brought up first when I was talking about 
things we could talk about. And that is a new process or tool that saves you time. So I'm presuming this has got something to do with efficiency in martial arts coaching and teaching. Am I correct? Yeah, well, that is something that permeates my entire life, always kind of has. And then when I went to university, I wound up in a class and we started talking about Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was the purveyor of the one best way. I mean, he was basically the creator of ergonomics, you know, pick up a box this way, don't pick it up that way, turn this way, don't turn that way, workflow and, and order. And those things are very helpful if you, of course, don't lean into them too hard, because if you lean into them too hard, then the rigidity becomes tyranny. And that's not a good thing. But, you know, there are efficiencies to be found in the way that things can be done. And in regard to working with my students and so forth, I'm always on that. I do not like the idea of a martial arts student being a, a lifetime student. I think people should come and get their stuff and get good at what they do and uh, then go off and live their life with their skill sets. So it depends on, on how you approach it. You know, if you're enjoying your training, if you, you know, you drink the fellowship and it's something that you do and you know, it has a, an aspect of it like that. That, that, that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, the idea of somebody being a uh, martial arts student, it's like, well, you're not really quite ready for this kata yet. Let's wait three years. I, I don't, I don't like that at all. You, you should be efficient in your teaching and in your instruction and in the growth of your students. And so a predisposition that I have, uh, a dusting of Frederick Winslow Taylor and application in the martial arts club. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I would consider that definitely a modernist approach. But last time we had a discussion, I, I pulled up my three tribes. I felt good guides for probably, I think, in society in general, the sort of the traditionalist, the modernist, and the postmodernist. And we can use them all as useful portals. And it's not a good idea to become slavish to any one of those. I mean, you can identify as one of those, but also freely dabble in the other two without considering yourself being a heretic. And when you introduced that, you said that, that there was definitely a good guy, the ergonomic the um but you've got to be careful not to be stuck too much in that rigidity so i certainly have a lot of uh, a lot i can relate to with with that in training and say so, so with efficiency of, of training do you think does that go over into empowerment is it would you say that you empower students rather than putting them in a passive role where they're just constantly just there to absorb information there to just take information on board you're, you're actually sort of making them run with that ball and run with that, you know, the ball that you throw them and run run with it in, in ways that uh, are, are going to be, that they're going to work best for them as opposed to run with the ball in exactly the way that you, you, you expect them to run with it. The, um, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is I absolutely detest the word empowerment. I would rather shave my head with a cheese grater and chew on a ball of aluminum, aluminum foil uh, <laughs> than, to, than to use that word. Sure. Um, it is, and I, I think you have the same distaste for it. It's utterly meaningless. It's uh, become, yeah. it's certainly become an utterly me meaningless. I think maybe it's original intention when, it, when people were using it, it had value. But uh, I think, it, you know, nowadays everyone's just, just throws it around. And, and often then what they're doing is they're not empowering people. They're not putting people in charge of their life or in charge of what they do. They're just using it as a term to make them under the illusion that they're, they're taking charge, but really they're just doing what they're told. That's my impression. That's why 
I'm very careful about using it now just because it has been overly used and it's just part of this whole cult of positive thinking. And there's, there's positive thinking and there's sort of capital P positive thinking, if you know what I mean. Being an optimist, being fine, that's, that's great. But then there's this total sort of uh, religiosity, um, uh, positive thinking that probably comes from, stems from new thought and counter-Calvinism from the 19th century, that kind of positive thinking that I'm, I'm wary of, should we say. But again, same with empowerment. So sorry, your take on the problem with using the term empowerment. It's meaningless. And when people use that word, I, I challenge it. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, be specific. What, is, what does that mean in mm -hmm. actionable terms? When, when I walk out of here, what will be the result of my experience with you? And oh, by the way, Calvin, Calvinism, not a guy you want to have a beer with, no, not a no. fun guy. No, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> but you look at this, and, and this is the way that I approach it. Every student comes into my dojo, and they get an entry form, and they check on it a couple boxes. So, you know, what do you, what do you want to get? It helps me get a perspective on what they're looking to gain. And I would say that a majority, a large majority of people check things like self-defense, get in shape, traditional environment to learn in. Those are the big three. And they're useless in the sense that they don't really mean anything. I have to step down into the secondary or maybe even the tertiary level and kind of root around and find out what it is. So if they say they're looking for a traditional environment to learn in, well, if it's a parent who checked that off for a kid, well, maybe the kid needs, you know, some fences and ditches in, in his life mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, free range. Or it could be a guy has shown up and he just got his ass kicked in a divorce and he needs a little bit of just visceral, I am okay. I mm -hmm. am okay. I can hit this bag pretty strong and I can have these small successes on the floor and, and I can control myself and my own individual destiny. So it's a wide range, you know, ranging from that adult that I just talked about to maybe the child that's looking for the fences and ditches. Mm -hmm. And that has to be addressed. And every student is unique in that respect. And that is what helps round them out makes the sphere of who they are not an oblong, not wow. an amorphous shape, but a sphere, because that's what nature seeks. If you leave a fluid alone, it wants to be a sphere. <laughs> and so the sphere is the shape that is balanced all the way around. Uh, nature doesn't particularly like sharp edges and 90 degree angles. They appear, but if given its choice, uh, it prefers things that are more uh, round, more Mandelbrotish, and yes. you know that's the way that uh, I think that martial arts should be approached. If you want to be a fighter, go do something else. But if you want to polish yourself or cast yourself into a furnace to be forged through some kicking and punching and personal responsibility and individual review, yeah, then martial arts is a pretty doggone good place to be. Wow. Funnily enough, it, it brings me on to, again, a point that you mentioned before, 
that oh, this is lots of confirmation bias coming out for me here. I have to, I have to say, <laughs> Chris, it's, it's quite incredible because I don't consider myself to be a traditionalist. Certainly, superficially, I don't. But yet, I relate so much to yourself, to you, and to Ian in many ways. And I mentioned Chris Rowan when we had our last discussion as well. And I was wondering whether it was a bit of a goju thing with, with, with you guys because he, he was somebody who said to me quite assertively, "They're not your students." They're not your students. And it was like, and I knew what he meant there. And he was saying, you know, you don't own these people. You've got a period of time to share your knowledge with them in the hope that it's going to help them grow, you know, what the direction that they choose, subjectively believed to be a, a good direction, but they're not yours. And, and where you just said that just then was, was great when you said that lifelong students, you know, you might be a lifelong student of life, I suppose, but a person who's just completely in this subordinate role with their teacher for the rest of their life, which is definitely reinforced for a lot of the fiction that we've had, and maybe the negative side of some of the stuff that, we, you know, we talk about positive experiences taken from stories, but on the negative side of it, again, that impression where there'll always be this wise teacher where you will always be beneath that person and there's nothing wrong with retaining that air of respect, but the, the idea that you'll always have this person beneath you and you can't learn from your student as well, is incredibly restrictive as well. Now, I've learned so much from my student, often from cocking up. But anyway, one of the things that we talk about efficient training, you talk about clarity of purpose. Now, I love this. And you just talked about the individual needs of someone who's coming to you to train. And again, I've probably got this big thing about threes, but I rounded up my approach to teaching and training as clarification, skepticism, and individuality. So clarification is exactly that, clarity of purpose. I think before you start any training, you need to be clear about what it is that you want out of that training. What is your objective? Um, you might have a bit of a mutual contract with your teacher where your teacher might bring up some things that you hadn't thought about before and thinking, well, actually, yeah, maybe that is what I'm getting at. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes someone can come forward and they'll, they'll tell you one thing and the discussion will go on and then suddenly you'll realise, well, don't you, you know, it actually might mean something else, there's something else in there as well. But that's why it's so important is to decide the objective on the macrocosmic um, level, i.e., you know, why do you really come here for training? But then also on the microcosmic level, when you're training an individual technique or approach or drill or whatever you're doing to understand immediately, why are we doing this? Because this is everything that can even come down to a bag, can't it? Like when you know, you're hitting a heavy bag and you start, you keep straightening the bag, you keep going out of breaking character and you straighten the bag and build in this extra behavior where suddenly the bag is still remains a bag. It stops becoming this target that you're visualizing it keeps getting interrupted because you're steadying the bag and you're reminding yourself it's just a bag when really you should be like focused on that particular area of training you should be thinking to yourself you know this is an opponent okay this is the head this is the stomach coming in with a jab he's coming in with a kick he's going to grab me or whatever we're looking at here in that particular area so getting that clarification on a small level and on a large level you've got down here say clarity of purpose and then you were also talking about the individual needs as well. That to me, that's the individuality at the end. You know, so I say clarification, skepticism, individuality. So skepticism speaks for itself. As far as I'm talking about skepticism, it's a little less skepticism, but I am talking about critical thinking, just, just objective, dispassionate critical thinking, which is good measure that, that should be taught to students. I think all students should learn it, whatever you're doing, uh, whatever discipline it is. And then individuality, how, what does it mean to you and how does it work for you? Now, understanding that. That's my three sort of pillars, if you like. There are two things that you've touched upon that I can immediately relate to. And I just find it fascinating just to hear, obviously, from you, you've got far more experience than me as well and worldly as well as within the martial arts. And I'm just interested to see how you come to that conclusion and why that's efficient training and teaching. 
It's all right, shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the clarity is sometimes not known by the student. You have your assignment and that assignment can be given in a, as a student, your assignment can be given to you in a hard draconian sort of methodology or it can be uh, gently nudged into a position. But you, you, know, you have your assignment and then you have your responsibilities. And so what's your responsibility? Well, at first it's to you as an individual, you have to make yourself proper. Uh, you have to orient yourself properly within your uh, martial art to, to get the maximum yield out of it. And by that, I mean, a maximum yield is a global, all-encompassing. Uh, you take a uh, motorcycle gang, a Hell's Angels. I mean, you know, you do not ever walk up to a Hell's Angel at the gymnasium and say, hey, you need to wipe that machine down before you leave, because they're not there. They, they don't go to the gym. They go to the party and they understand violence and they understand that it has to work quick, fast and well and be brutal, nasty and short, to quote the fine Brit. The, the point is that without that clarity, it's just a mishmash. It becomes immeasurable. It becomes unwieldy. And eventually people will uh, just drift away because there is no clarity. They want it. They need it. They desire it. It has to happen. Uh, all of our, our lives and every aspect of our, our lives are uh, defined by boundaries. We have to have those boundaries. We have to have those roads, tracks, they all go somewhere and they've gone there forever. You know, I mean, just, you know, you can get on in England, you can get on, you know, some of the tracks that go across England that have been used for 10,000 years and they still exist because the purpose is clear and there's a fine delineation. Get on this, walk this way, you'll wind up here. And that's what people want. And then when you shift into the skepticism, I am going to lose my mind the next time somebody says, well, you know, I'm a skeptic, I'm skeptical of that. It's like, no, 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 you're, you're actually just being a contrarian. There's yes, a difference between, between skepticism. Yeah, there's a big yeah. difference between yeah, skepticism. Yeah, it's what, it's what there was, um, I think what was defined as pseudo-skepticism. It's the impression of being a skeptic, but it's not at all. It's actually the complete opposite. It's, yeah. not, it's not healthy skepticism. No, it's just being no. contrarian. Yeah, yeah. Or controversial. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and you're annoying, so please go away. Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't want you near me because you do not have... Yeah. You, you do not have and you do not desire any kind of intellectual effort here. You just want yeah. to be a contrarian. It's, it's an adolescent behavior. Yes. Um, you know, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's I, just arguing for the sake of arguing. It's often ego-driven. In most cases, I find when you get that pseudo-skeptical, that contrarian point of view, if you're going to be a skeptic, question everything, but question it with reason and logic. And there are very specific tools. Because if you say, I, I disagree with that, you say, okay, you disagree with that. What's your argument based upon? It's not just saying, I just don't like that. I don't agree with that, or I don't believe that. You need to bring rational tools. You need to have a, a strong basis for your argument, which uh, hopefully from that sort of discussion, two people or whoever's having the discussion can move forward and learn something e either way. Or it's great to test an argument. But again, even if you're going to test that argument, you need to be coming to the table with genuine tools rather than just, I don't believe in that. You know, that's not good enough, is it? Well, you, I, here's a here's a little trick that I use is uh, when somebody says, I feel, 
okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, my hand is coming up to my mouth and I'm kind of stepping back and crossing my arms. And it's like, well, uh, all right, keep going. But generally when somebody is saying something, you know, I don't feel that that works right. Don't say that. Say, could you please explain how this works in a combative situation? Because it seems evident that at this point, the guy would hit you with his other hand. Yes. Okay, that I can deal with. That, that, yes. That's wonderful. Please, thank you. Sure. Because now we're pressure testing stuff. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to find out, you yeah. know. But if you just stand there and say, I feel, yeah, I, please, please don't take this the wrong way. Yeah. I, I don't care how you feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like when you're, when you're teaching something and you find it, and I get it quite regularly, I'll be drilling something and something's not working at the client. And I'll be saying to them, okay, right. Well, first of all, what we're drilling here is very high percentage technique. A lot of examples of plenty of people being able to do it. I've got personal experience, but I've got experience from other people being able to do it. It might be something where I go, okay, well, this is better for people of a certain weight and size. But let's say you find, for argument's sake, you find something that's fairly consistent, like a reverse punch or a cross or a rear hand straight. That's fairly universal, isn't it? You can back that up with physics. You can back that up. You can just press a button now on YouTube and you can find examples of it working in a variety of different environments. Let's say for argument's sake, someone's just not, they're not landing it. It's pretty crazy. I haven't had that actually. That, I mean, it normally gets to be something more grappling based. Let's say for some reason that rear hand straight is not working for this person. So I have to then have to ask the question, what are they doing wrong? Why are they not getting it? And is there something wrong with the way I'm teaching maybe? So that, you know, that that's a fair amount of skepticism, you know, from that point of view saying, okay, well, we know that it's not wrong. I mean, first we might want to question, is the move okay? Well, the move seems to be okay. It's got a fairly robust backing, but What's the student doing that I can obviously correct straight up? Has the student listened to what I've said? I mean, I've had that loads of times as well. You know, we'd often go, I, I thought I said that, you know, about two or three times. I've often got, like, had questions when I was at the end of a webinar or a seminar where I've, someone's asked something and I've gone, I think I had, I had one, I've had a couple of times where people have said things like, can you avoid grappling? And I'm going, well, everything I've done in this self-defense scenario has been all been based on avoiding grappling. But when it comes down to the clinch, you've, you've got no choice, you need to grapple. So the same thing was like, okay, reverse punch. So you look at that and you say, well, okay, well, something, well maybe I'm not getting the, the point across well. There's something wrong. And so that, that then comes back to me. So I will take that as saying honest criticism, you know, a, a humbling point of view going, there's something, I'm not getting this across this person's particular moment. So yeah, I think that's, that's useful in, in that sort of sense. But as you said, someone just going saying, you know, I, I feel, or that's, because again, you get that kind of reaction. Nah, nah, I don't think it's going to work. Nah, nah, it's not going to work. And, 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 and the other thing when they start laughing and they get, you know, and you're going, now, hold on. It's because you're not doing this, this and this. You know, we know it works. We've got a lot of background on it. So maybe I'm teaching you wrong or maybe you're not listening right. That area as well. So yeah, that's honest. But you say that whole kind of like, I don't feel, you know, say, well, you can feel a lot of things. It doesn't mean they're uh, objectively correct. <laughs> no, no, not at all. You no, know, no. You, you talk about that, uh, that presentation, the students. One of the things that I say to my classes and I've had to say it multiple times, and I have said it multiple times. And, and I mean, we might be pushing into the hundreds yeah. because, you know, the, the dynamics of the class are changing. People are coming in, going out, all this kind of stuff. But 
the the thing that I say to them is, listen, if I ask you if this makes sense to you or you've got it or it's coming together, whatever, and it's not, that's not on you. It's on mm -hmm. me because I've failed as an instructor to express this in terms that meet yeah. your understanding. So look, I don't want anybody standing there not raising their hand going, I didn't get it. If you didn't get it, it's not on you. It's yeah. on me because this yeah. is my job is to make yes. sure that you get this. Yeah. And so nobody ever gets criticized for saying, I didn't get it. And nobody, you know, at a class of like 25, one person raises their hands and says, I didn't get it. It's like, great. Let me, ex what part didn't you get? But we dive into it, you know, yeah. but it's my responsibility. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. if I have to, if I have to present something five times, I've done it wrong mm. um, because I've had to do it five times. It's like the American tourists in France, um, and I'm trying to get directions from a French citizen that if I speak in English louder, they'll understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, no, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you should probably learn a little bit of French and meet them where they are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 So that's uh, that's a big thing in my book. That's a, that's a huge yeah, that's thing. And, and that's that's where skepticism is genuinely humbling because you're being critical of, of what you've taught. So it might not be what you're teaching, but ha because, as I said before, we've crossed that one off the list. We've said, yeah, OK, yeah, we're, we're pretty confident and there's a, more than enough fact here that this is. And the person who's critiquing it, they're not coming from a position of experience that would offer a, a reasonable counter to that there's still something wrong here because it's not working for them. So it's then the next area has to be your teaching. And then there's individuality. That might nicely link up with a few things that you said before, and that's brain types and personalities. How much does that change? We know that there's a bit of a myth in terms of different teaching types for different people. This idea everyone's got their own different teaching type. They've tested this and they find that it's not efficient as much as what I would love to think it was efficient it would be very much my bias to the idea that you teach different people different ways what we found is that what generally happens is it's not you need to adjust to different individuals fair enough but it doesn't mean that you have to change the whole teaching method for a different individual and I just love to link that up with with your thoughts on brain types and personalities well, a couple thoughts on that. There's Myers-Briggs, which is a little outdated, but useful. And then there's the five pillars of openness, conscientiousness, experience. And everybody's got a quality. It's not necessarily static. No. And people are going to grow and morph and they should. I mean, what a boring world it would be. I was, I was at a class reunion back in my high school uh, so he says, boy, you're really, you're really different than you were in high school. I said, well, I should hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be a boring world if we all stayed? Yeah. I peaked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's a different thing. And I do look at people. Well, there's a famous mystic by the name of Rumi. The thing that I think is significant is what Rumi said, which is, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but sure. don't, but don't look at, don't look at the cloak in which the, the person is wrapped. Look at the, what is inside the wrapping. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I've slaughtered what he said, but you get the idea is, yeah. so 
when you're working with students, it's not like, hey, this is a 45-year-old, you know, pretty muscular weightlifter that spent some time wrestling in high school and then boxing and all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, why did you do all of those things? Let me find out why, what, what drives you to sure. have done those things. Yeah. And then you begin to find out. And then that shapes your ability. I'll tell you a story. I had a guy, rough, rough time, lost his job through the economic downturn, you know, with the, the COVIDs. And yeah. I like to call it the COVIDs because it makes me sound stupid. <laughs> I call it the COVIDs. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah he, got the, he got that COVID, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, oh, the Rona. Uh, the Rona, yeah, he got the Rona. Uh, <laughs> and he got dealt some, some other pretty rough things that, that came along in that life. And he'd been working hard for his brown belt. And I gave it to him a little early. And when I say, you know, I always tell people, hey, you earned your belt. I didn't give you anything. I, I did give this guy his belt a little early. Was it six months early? Was it 90 days? I don't know, but it was a little early. But but I'm also a big believer in, you know, the morphogenic field, which is he yes. will grow into this very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he needed it. He needed that now. He, sure. You know, yes. that was so. Um, and you know what? Wow. Uh, talk about a pop in his step and a new sense of and now he's going to be able to take that out. And meet those challenges, those brutal challenges that are just hammering him about the head and shoulders every time he rolls out of bed. He's going to be able to meet it with a new, refreshed sense of self and achievement. It's like, hey, I did this. I'm here. And that was the right move at that time for that single individual. Yeah. And yeah. I was able to at that yeah. because I understood where he was and how yeah. he's functioning in the world, I was able to say, you know what, I can make a little bit of a difference here that will turn into oil and what, boof, you know, that oil yeah. just hits the mud puddle and just goes, woof, yeah. and makes those beautiful rainbow of, um, of B-Tex chemicals. But yeah. the point is, is that... <clears throat> yeah, it's essentially, you're giving someone an opportunity, you feel that they're not technically 100% up to it but you feel that if you give them that opportunity that they're going to more than meet it because it's that personality they've got that personality so yeah it's what is what they needed I love that yeah. description there of morphogenic fields the last time I read about that was actually in a true crime book believe it or not <laughs> well I that's that's actually a Rupert Sheldrake thing yeah so anyway that is interesting because again that's not you doing an individual teaching style which is you know so that's largely been i think it's largely been debunked uh, that that you use that, that it's efficient to use individual styles for different people that's you making a decision based on an individual's personality which i think is great that's very much again that really is putting the individual at the center of their training you know you know rather than than you coming up to say well okay I'm, we're going to use this method of training for you because it's specific to you and catered around you you're in many ways you're prompting and you're inspiring this student to, to step forward rather than you going to them and saying you know okay well I'm going to crack this for you and I'm going to change this for you and I'm going to change that for you we hate the word empowerment but that really is that's putting him in charge isn't it you've given him a new responsibility you've given him a sense of worth you know with everything happening so bad for him in his life but yet he's still clinging on to his training this is what he's working hard at and though he's not necessarily up to that particular level to just have that just to be given that win you've helped make it his reality haven't you 
there's a thing that happens in, and I'm making air quotes, uh, traditional martial arts. We have rules. This is the way it's done. Da, 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 da. Well, you know, that's good. And you do need to have standards and rules and order and structure. And I'm not opposed to those kinds of things. But, you know, I talked about it earlier about rigidity turning into tyranny. Well, yes. I place compassion higher than I do following the rules. Sure. And it's a balancing act. It's not baking. Baking is a science, you know, you, you get you get an ingredient wrong and it doesn't come out right. But cooking, you can go, oh, there was too much salt. Well, we'll add more broccoli until we, you know, dilute <laughs> yeah. the salt. So martial arts and martial arts instruction is really cooking. It's not baking. And I think that the people that get into the baking aspect of it, the rigidity of it, it becomes tyrannical. And in fact, I was looking at a guy's website the other day. And it was like, here's the rules of the dojo. This was the first thing that was up. And it was like, no teaching of any technique unless sensei is authorized. No talking on the dojo floor. No, And it's like, wait a minute. I encourage talking on the dojo floor. And I encourage students to work together and teach each other. It was such an anathema to me that I was, it was like, this is not a place I want to be. No, I don't want to go to that school. Now, I'm not so uh, loosey goosey that it's like, hey, yeah, you know, do your no. own thing, be a hippie, you know, be a hippie. It's 1968, San Francisco. Yeah, do your <laughs> thing, baby. No, it, that's that's not the point. But you and I both understand that play and exploration are essential parts of education. Definitely, you have to have those things, or it becomes yeah. clinical. Yeah. Manny Evans, one of Jeff's teachers, always used to talk about quoting someone else, but learn the rules in order to break the rules. And and it's interesting because often all the rules that you, as you say, you do need to have rules and boundaries and things like that. I mean, that's all part of the cross-training experience anyway. When you step off your island and go onto another island and explore that, you know, yeah. you go in that and respect the rules of the laws of that particular one in order to get the maximum benefits of it. You don't, um, a classic example was my mum made this amazing pumpkin soup by the way thanks to the state for that wonderful squash fruit that came over here for the halloween season and that see honestly we were lighting up turnips before you guys decided to create trick-or-treating out of our souling and all that but anyway so she made this lovely pumpkin soup it's just a science if you like and she followed it rigidly to the science and, and this part's great but then outside of that she gave the recipe to somebody who loved it and they phoned her up and they said it's terrible and she said, what do you mean it's terrible? So I made it. It was no good. It was no good at all. I made it rubbish. You know, again, this is this is interesting. For me, it's like the student teacher thing going on. It. And I'm going, oh, I'm sorry about that. Didn't you like it? So no, no, no. I thought you really liked it. That's why I gave you the recipe. You had that's in my mind. You liked it. So it must be something you were doing with it. That's like, and I said, my mum goes, okay, well, what did you do? And she went, yeah, well, I thought I'd add some chicken to it. And then I thought, I went, what? <laughs> So again, yeah, so it's important to, let's say, to learn the rules and then to learn how to break the rules. And that's also part of the, it sounds like a bit of a contradiction in terms, but that, but that is also part of the whole play thing as well. You know, you learn that and then you learn how to explore out of it. And sometimes when you have a school that has then suddenly then makes you keep that rigidity and says like, okay, well, this is what we're going to state and this, this is the rules that we're going to always follow. You go back traditional routes, you go back through the history and you go, but that's not what your founders did. That's not what your best teachers did. That's not what the great people that, that you hold up in high esteem, you lion eye. They were rule breakers. They were people who went out and did that. They learned the rules first, but they went out and then they explored. You also get an opportunity in that methodology. 
I've experienced a lot of different uh, teaching styles uh, in the martial arts, and I want laughter in the dojo. I want people to laugh at one another and not be ashamed of it. I want people to laugh at their own errors and mistakes and find joy in their training. I want people to explore the thing that didn't work and understand why it didn't work, because that is oftentimes an important aspect of the education process. To know the negative side, to be able to say, oh, that was really dumb. One of my old instructors, he used to have a line that he would use and it was, you know, somebody would do something and they'd get popped in maybe in some kumite or something, you know, and, and they would repeat it. And you say, well, you know, don't do that. But, you know, sometimes ingrained things are kind of hard to undo. Sure. And uh, where, where it came from, who knows? But it, yeah. that's the challenge. And finally, I remember him just, uh, this guy was like, well, yeah, but I do it. And he just looked at him and he said, well, as long as you know you're doing it, I guess it's okay. And then he turned around <laughs> and raised, raised an eyebrow at me, kind of like, whatever. Yeah, it's <laughs> self-awareness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're going to try and move on for it, but, I, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yeah, uh, but I'm glad I'm glad you're you're aware of this. It hasn't changed anything other than that you're conscious of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and maybe we could begin to remediate this. But yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Honestly, there, there are things that you do. There are occasionally things you do as a teacher as well when you go. I'm, I'm, you go into that do as I say and not as I do sometimes because I'm going. Oh my god, uh, you know. I look back at videos, um, even recent ones. You know, when I'll be doing routines or something, I go, oh, I keep dropping my hands, or I keep, you know, there's like I'm looking. I'm going, oh god, I'm so badly off balance there and thing. You know, because when when you're doing editing, this is when it all comes out doesn't it and these are things that you're telling your clients not to do and you're going you know you have to keep looking at yourself as a model i suppose it becomes a a useful tool but you get you know it's ingrained habits are tough and you know a lot of the time i mean i find that also improves our teaching though doesn't it because we know that things that we've learned badly we know how to avoid that for someone else you say this is what i did and now i've got a problem i'm conscious of it i'm doing my best to improve upon it i don't want you to have that you know what I mean? So this is what we're looking for. This is what we're trying to achieve at this particular moment. But occasionally you're going to see me do it and because everyone's human and people, again, you can freeze frame some of the best fighters in the world if you can pick apart. Let's, let's talk about two rather famous guys, uh, Ricky Hatton and Joe Calzaghe. Right. Though, I mean, Ricky Hatton was so fast. It yeah. was staggering how fast Hatton was. I yeah. just was... And I, at close I, range, you know, too. And at close oh range. Oh, my God. And moving forward all the yeah. time. And then you look at Calzaghe, and he is, I, I don't know how more opposite he could be in style. Sure. Both of those men rose to the top of their boxing fields and were the kings at one time. Yes. I watched Calzaghe one time hit a guy, and the guy turned and kind of gave his back up and was like heading for a corner or something like that. And Calzaghe throws his arms up and kind of does a little hip swivel dance, you know? Mm. And it's like, Ricky Hatton would never do that. Yeah. You know? yeah. It just, it's not in his constitution. No, no. Um, and wildly different, yet they rose to the top. So are many paths to- Definitely, to, definitely. To the success, yeah. 
I mean, isn't that why Ali and Frazier bought the best out in each other? Frazier's hook got into Ali's defence in that the first time he encountered it, purely based on it happened to be his strength and it happened to be Ali's weakness. And that's really where it came from, where he got the knockdown in the fight of the century. And it was based on that whole plan by saying, well, this is where the gap is in Ali's defence. Okay, Mm -hmm. and guess what? That's where you're strongest. And in the end, you look at those two, at the end of the trilogy, their fights, and the damage they did to each other was based on having such different styles and different approaches. I mean, they were dangerous for each other in that respect. Well, yes, I'm a boxing fan. And, you know, the thing about boxing is that a good boxer actually leaves a little bit of themselves in the ring after that fight. Hmm. And, you know, you and I have seen it. I mean, I, in watching these, these things, I mean, I've seen boxers in a match, you can see it in their eyes that it's like everything I've got, it's not working and they get beat and they're never the same afterwards. It has taken something from them. Once you understand that, that is unbelievable to see. And so when you see uh, bad decisions, or at least I think they're bad decisions and so forth, it, it upsets me deeply because these guys are leaving something out there. They're not just leaving maybe a little bit of their physicality, but and sometimes their spirit is broken. Ronda Rousey, absolutely dominant. And then she wasn't. And it never was the same again. No, no, exactly. It was a, from a completely art sport basis. It was a tragedy from, from that perspective, from the, because yeah. there was so much that was really enjoyable about watching her fight. People loved looking at the judo in her fights. Personally, I loved her demonstration of being able to strike effectively from grappling positions. Yeah. That was my takeaway from watching Ronda Rousey fight. I loved it. And then when she got beaten by Holly Holmes, again, it was a style clash. She was the right opponent to beat her, I think. I believe it was just that, that she stuck to that particular strength and range where she could beat Ronda Rousey. And just and then to see then Ronda Rousey never come back again, you know, to, to see Ronda Rousey, well, we, we don't know. I mean, you know, <laughs> we've, got, we've got Tyson and, uh, <laughs> and Jones at the moment, haven't we? So, but, you know, say so never say never. And George Foreman will, will be testament to that. But okay, the golden age of her career, shall we say, just to see that just to end. It was horrible uh, from a person who appreciates combat sports, from a person who appreciates fights. But yeah, as exactly the example of that. I think of them as Arthur's and Mordred's. I wrote this in my book, Mordred's Victor. And there are people who are naturals, and it's not taking anything away from them. Some of the best in all sports are a combination of natural athleticism and her tenacious spirit. But occasionally they'll meet their Mordred, a destructive force that isn't particularly natural, is quite limited. But their spirit is so tough. I mean, it's that Rocky Balboa, Chuck Weppner kind of ideal that people... Chuck Weppner, the Bayonne bleeder. Bless him. him. Yeah, bless him. But you also see it with Joe Frazier. Frazier was possibly blind in one eye through most of his career. I mean, that's what people are thinking with his diabetes. That was uh, possibly the case. There's there's a strong theory that he was. He was certainly, at the end of the fight of the century, he was in hospital and Ali wasn't when he won his bout against Ali. But I think that the Mordreds are often very dangerous to the natural. And the problem you often find with the natural is that when they do come down, 
it's very hard for them to get back up because they're not used to it. I would tender this theory that it's because who they are, it's an essence. And so when that essence is maimed, injured, they don't know how to reassemble it. It's oftentimes when you ask uh, somebody who is uh, at a high level in their sport, it is the combination that you God given talent, discipline, all of those kinds of things came together. But you ask them how they do what they do. They say something, but they don't have an answer. I just did what I needed to do at the time kind of thing. And, uh, you know, that's why sometimes great athletes make horrible coaches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. You know, often the martial arts world is full of this. And yet we're, we're say the martial arts world, sorry, the martial arts world outside of boxing, Muay Thai, a lot of the high combat sports is full of this attitude of where, you know, the greatest fighters are the greatest teachers are absolutely not. You know, Customato is a classic example of that in the boxing world. You know, there's, there's loads oh, yeah. of it. Teaching is a completely separate art altogether and it comes from an awful lot of scar tissue of failing. And again, coming back to this whole clash of personalities, when I said this, Arthur and Mordred, the Arthurs have the problems with the Mordreds because the Mordreds had a very, very difficult career because they're used to failure. They're used to being knocked down and then just keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. So to them, it's just another Tuesday when they lose, you know, so they're okay. And they don't feel like they've got as much to lose when they're going in there. They often have this kind of thing, whereas the Arthur thing, as you say, it's it's an attack of their identity, isn't it, when they lose? They've got an almost embryonic amount of experience in dealing with that failure, certainly dealing with failure on a high level. I like the people who figure out what the price of success is and pay the price. Yeah. Uh, With the understanding that there's going to be a lot of failure on the way and every opportunity, you know, every failure is an opportunity. You know, there's that saying, you know, people are like, "Uh, if you're not learning from your failures, you know, you're not growing anything. It's like, okay, I get it. I get it. You're you're Gary V. I get it. My point is that there doesn't have to be a massive unveiling. It could be a very simple, small thing, you know, walk away with something from it. You know, in the sports world, there's a, a very, you know, the idea of, you know, there's no moral victories. We lost the game, but we proved something to ourselves. No. No, you, you, you play the game to outscore the other team yeah. and that's how it's measured. And that's how you get in the playoffs and that's how you yes, make money sure. and until yeah. you win. So I'm, I'm not a big guy on moral victories, um, no. but I am a big guy on rooting around through the loss and finding out what yes. happened. I mean, Jamie, the, the number of projects that in my queue and yeah. the numbers of them that have failed miserably even on the dojo floor it's like hey you know what i'm gonna try this form of teaching because it looks like and then it's like that is the worst thing i I, I yeah and of course of course i can bail out immediately because i'm the king of my land so it's like oh well we're not doing that anymore and most of life and this is going to sound really quite negative and very bad but it shouldn't be taken this way most of life is failure Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And and so if if you start to become okay with it and say, all right, you know, because I've I've had some just after all, Chris, what are we doing if we're not testing for failure all the time? When we're testing stuff, when we're when we're in this process of learning, we're trying to find failure, aren't we, in order to progress on. So yes, it is very much a rule. I mean, again, that's the scientific method. As a young man, 
I had an enormous fear of failure. I, I mean, almost paralyzing fear of failure, not all the time, but you know, there were moments that it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a move because I'm afraid that this is going to be seen as failure in the eyes of my peers. Oh, well, I'm long since past that, but boy, it was real. It was real at a time, you know, whether it was the business world or the, you know, the public affairs. And then I finally just came to the realization that I think far too highly of myself to think that other people really care. (laughs) (laughs) What a high sense you have of yourself, Mr. Wilder, (laughs) that that you think that anybody is walking around two hot seconds after you self emulated, you know, (laughs) that, that, that they even care. They don't, but you should, and you should, you should take what you can get from it and move on. And that's the way that that works. Chris, you're a fantastic teacher and a wonderful guest for the show. And what a wonderful um, topic to finish on for this one. I, I would love to have you back on. Would, would you be willing, I don't mean to put you on the hot spot now, would you be willing to come back to the Club Chimera podcast? Oh, my, my friend, I would, uh, I would absolutely love it. Uh, it would be a delight. Yeah, um, I loved hearing about you. I loved hearing the humility at the end about that for a teacher and just confirms a lot of things that I hoped were, were true of good teachers. Thanks so much for your time today. Where can people find out all things Chris Wilder? You're a prolific author. You have two podcasts still running at the same time at the moment. You have a smaller one and a, a, the, the back channel and then you've got the, the martial arts and life. Is that right? Yeah. And then there, of course, there's the blog which, you know, you can, you can pick up on that. You can go to Chris Wilder, K-R-I-S-W-I-L-D-E-R.com. You can go to chriswilder.com and you can get into the newsletter. And I know the first thing everybody says, I don't need another newsletter in my inbox. A couple things. Uh, number one, I, I try to get good information out, not necessarily always things that I've written, but other things that people have produced. And, you know, I design it in a way that you can tell at the beginning, you know, you can look at the title of the email and go, oh, I have no interest in that. Move on. Okay, great. (laughs) And, you know, I've had some people that have been on that mailing list for 14 years now. And it isn't that you're going to receive a a pitch now and then, you know, hey, I've got this new thing I'm doing. You might want to, you know, spend a pound and check it out. But I try to keep that respectful and uh, decent but the newsletter carries a lot of stuff in it that doesn't go out on the back channel it doesn't go out on you know the blog it goes out in the newsletter because it's information that sometimes mm, isn't necessarily suited for people other than the ones that are kind of following and have an interest. I I don't know how else to put it, but it's just sort of the back room at the club, I guess, is a good way to put it. Sure. um, Lots of things there. But the best entry is just to go to chriswilder.com. You can root around in there and find all of the links to whether it's the podcasts or the blogs or uh, the books or the samples or the free giveaways and yada, 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 baba, baba, baba. Yeah, there's just a bunch of stuff there. And I like doing that. It's fun. I like it when I get that email from somebody that says, I was just thinking that and you brought it together very clearly. Thank you. Yes. Job, job well done, you know, and then I turn around and you know, somebody standing in my uh, office going, hey, we've got a leak in the bathroom. Okay, thanks.
<laughs> I love it. I love it. The links will all be in the show notes. Thanks again for being on the show. I look forward to speaking to you again, Chris, in the near future. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. Always good to hear your voice, and thank you. I really appreciate it. My first true contact with Chris came from his honest appraisal of my first martial arts book. In an email to me, he was courteous and genuinely helpful to a complete stranger, giving honest feedback that I believe not only improved my writing and presentation then, when other people were publishing my works, and also now in driving me in my first time venture into self-publishing. Just editing our interview reminded me of Chris's genuine desire for progress and looking for objective measures in quality in whatever project he might pursue whilst keeping an honest self-check. It's a good model for all of us to follow. To reiterate his words at the end, please check out the various links that are in the show notes and get onto his newsletter. Speaking of my books, you may be aware that for the first time in my writing career I've decided to self-publish. Three of my books are now available as ebooks. Mordred's Victory is a genuine second edition with new material and some editorial changes and some additional photographs. Wrong Fu is now available as a paperback for the first time since it was published. You can order these directly from Amazon or you can order signed copies from me. Unfortunately, all of the reviews I built up under my previous publisher have not been transferred over despite my request to Amazon. Therefore, I'd really appreciate it if those who have read them, if you could go onto Amazon and write some for me. I'd also be happy to know that my other books will also be available as paperbacks in the near future. On the subject of reviews, I need them. If you've benefited from my services in general, my Google business page could certainly benefit from your kind feedback. If you enjoy these podcasts, please rate and review them on iTunes, Stitcher, Podtail, Altail, TunedIn, Podplay, and anywhere else you download your podcasts. If you have trouble finding the listing, the show is still listed as Jamie Club's podcast rather than the Club Chimera Martial Arts podcast because, guess what, I'm awkward like that. Don't forget to check out Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram where I'll be posting up regular news of monthly webinars and other events. Why not book yourself on one of our regular events or even a course for you or your club or association. Finally, if you want to get in contact to give feedback on the show or request information on my services, please check out the website clubchimera.com where you'll see a huge back catalogue of written material including regular lesson reports. I have several interviews planned for upcoming episodes as well as a return to the essay format. My guests will include Ian Abernethy, Mary Stevens of Athena Karate, Gretchen Carlson of the Martial Journeys podcast and Andrea Harkins of the Martial Arts Woman podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>